Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. This is the second episode in another multi-part series sponsored by Farmer Veteran Coalition, a national nonprofit organization mobilizing veterans to feed America and transition from military service to careers in agriculture. Our guest this week is Stephen Carpenter. Stephen is a graduate of Stanford Law School and the deputy director and senior staff attorney for Farmers Legal Action Group, or FLAG. At FLAG, Stephen focuses on disaster assistance, federal farm programs, sustainable agriculture, and of course, discrimination in agricultural lending. In this episode, Stephen and I get into his upbringing on a dairy farm in Western Missouri. And like many kids who grew up on a dairy, his fond memories of that time are mostly in retrospect. We talk about his father's time as a Korean War veteran and how as a young adult during the farming crisis, Stephen recalls the difficulty of that part of his family's farm and his own life. It was this experience, I think, that sort of began to lay the framework and the groundwork for what is clearly a passion of Stevens, helping those in need. We take a deeper dive into the USDA's Discrimination Financial Assistance Program, what classifies as discrimination, who are these third-party groups, how the application should be written, what type of evidence you should present, how awardees will be taxed, and much, much more. Enjoy. You grew up in the Missouri area, is that right, Stephen? I did, actually. Uh, a little dairy farm southeast of Kansas City. No kidding. So, when you were when you were growing up, did did you view that time on the dairy um, as something you cherished, or as something you were ready to sort of move away from as quickly as you could? I appreciated it a lot more in retrospect um, <laughs> Most than people I do. did at the time. It was a lot of work. Um, yeah, I, I know our our audience today is is very largely veterans, and my my dad had been a Korean War era guy, and then ended up in the reserves. And we used to kind of joke to him that um, summer camp was really a vacation for him, even when, as he <laughs> says, he was running through the briars. That it still. He, he wasn't fooling us. He, he was escaping milking cows. But we had to do it. So. In college, did you did you think that you ever wanted to go back into agriculture? No, I, I intentionally went to a non-agricultural school, but uh, but I, but I, I eventually went to law school. And I what I did carry with me was feeling like there were wrongs out there to be righted. And I kind of wanted to. I guess I should, not, should probably shouldn't say this, but I wanted to fight the man, and um, right. and being a lawyer helped do that. And then I also spent a lot of time here on the farm with my folks too. So I wasn't ever that far away in 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 actuality. You know, I didn't just bail on them, but uh, right. But I I did not end up making a living farming, which is probably good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough sell. Did uh, did this desire to sort of uh, right the wrongs of the world come from 
a particular experience or a story that you had as a kid or growing up? Sure. I mean, when I grew up in a community of, of small farms and I can just say right now, they're basically all gone. And mm. um, I was a young adult during the farm crisis. And around here, it felt like the farm crisis started earlier than the 80s. Um, and I saw people, I thought, being exploited and being treated unfairly. And people didn't understand their rights. And the whole situation was confusing um, and chaotic. And people worked hard and they produced food and somehow they got the short end of the stick. So it just kind of got my goat. And yeah. I was a good student. I thought, here's something I can do that um, make a living at and um, do good work. A lot of people go to law school with just some sort of vague idea of what they wanted to do. And, and I was I was pretty clear. I wanted to, um, I would have said at the time, work on rural poverty issues and in mm. particular issues with struggling farmers. I have family from Appalachia too. So I could have imagined doing you know, something other than farm stuff, but it's really what I wanted to do most. When you graduated law school, did you go straight into the farmer's legal action group or did you go somewhere I else did. first? Oh, no I kidding. did. I did. Yes. So I really only had one uh, one productive job. Don't count <laughs> teaching classes and pumping gas and working <laughs> on the farm. <laughs> you definitely count the working on the farm. How did you find these guys, Flag? I... Uh, was in Missouri and I talked to a guy I knew who was um, protesting low dairy prices and I said I think I'm going to law school do you know anybody there's a lawyer who does the stuff that's interests you and he says oh yeah there's some people in Minnesota you could talk to so this takes one person and I landed up in Minnesota um, it was the very first stages of the 1993 floods and so I don't know if anybody, you know, not everybody will remember that, but all of the Iowa was a disaster area. Northern Missouri, just everything was flooded out. And so I wrote a guide to disaster assistance for farmers, how to use FEMA, loans that were okay. possible, and just kind of drove in a car from town to town in Iowa and Missouri talking to farmers about what their legal rights were. That was my initiation. I've worked on really large scale litigation, especially on discrimination issues. I worked with uh, the, in, in some of the, the large cases where USDA got sued for discrimination as a court appointed official mm. to help implement the settlements. So I didn't bring the lawsuits. Uh, our, where I work, Farmers Legal Action Group has sued USDA and litigated numerous times. But my biggest experience in in litigation has been working with the court to to try to get the settlements to work. Are you are you able to share any sort of detail around what those lawsuits for discrimination were against the USDA? Oh sure. So the, they're public. I mean the the I worked on one that was or actually two. It was primarily it was about black farmers. And you have this long history in our country of, of uh, dispossession of black farmers in the South, you know, where many people remained. Um, and those numbers went way, way down over the last century. And a lot of, 
a lot of that was due to discrimination. And so there ended up being some, a couple of lawsuits that against USDA that settled and that had a process whereby you could try to show that, that you were discriminated against. And so uh, hmm. I helped carry those, those settlements out. So this current um, financial assistance program with the USDA, the 22007 discrimination financial assistance is not the first time that USDA has offered financial assistance for discrimination? That's true. Uh, and, and I kind of think of it this way. You, you've got to remember that the USDA, Department of Agriculture, was founded during the Lincoln administration. So it was inevitable that there were going to be some inequalities in the way that the department ran. The problem is that they didn't change as quickly as they could have. And in many places, they left the, the implementation of their programs to local officials was spread all over the country. And so, I mean, not to pick on anybody, but in Mississippi, that looked a lot different than it may have looked in uh, Iowa. So, you know, you have US Department of Agriculture local offices in Mississippi in majority black counties where everybody in the office is white and they, they made decisions based on the way politics ran and the way society was. I mean, there's just kind of no way around it. And, and unfortunately, I think that USDA kind of went the extra mile to help enforce that sort of discrimination. Um, and so that in the end resulted in these lawsuits, you know, and now we have this program, it's, it's not aimed just at black farmers, but at a, a wide variety of people who have faced discrimination. And, you know, part of it's just the society. Um, but part of it is USDA, I think, being slow um, in not giving women loans, um, in, you know, in not being attentive to the fact that there are Hispanic and Latino folks out there that are farmers, not just farm laborers. And, and so those folks got a, the short end of the stick. And this is an effort created by Congress to try to, to fix part of that. Um, and so the, I'm, I'm, you know, you can complain about any program and there are, there are criticisms I have of this one, but it's, it's a real effort to face up to that history. And so yeah. um, I think it's, it's a good, it's a good thing. And people that believe that they face discrimination, I hope will consider uh, taking part, filling out an application. So far, we've sort of talked about uh, mostly race as kind of the, the predominant discriminatory factor. Um, what other forms of discrimination do you have experience with specific to agriculture? Um, if I talk about specifically the people that I've worked with, uh, sure. one group that's really noticeable is Native people. And so, you know, indigenous folks to North America were doing their own agriculture 500 years ago, you know, and but all that got disrupted and changed. And there are still a lot of Native Americans who are trying to farm and ranch in the United States. And you have, they have a great deal of difficulty using USDA services, getting the sort of loans that, that this program really talks about. Um, and so in, in my mind, uh, when I have worked in those communities, 
it has felt like they're often so isolated from the sort of services that that the rest of rural America would be used to getting um, that I think that there's a there's a profound history there uh, that is a difficult one that includes USDA. The other that I would just say straightforwardly is women. Um, you know, I'm older than you, and I'm sure uh, quite a lot of your audience. But when I graduated from high school, I could have got a loan from USDA. But if my sisters had, and they'd worked as much, milked as many cows, they'd have been laughed out of the room. And mm. so we're we're not finished with that, you know. And I think there are a lot of women out there who have a lot of skill and ability, and their ability, their chances to farm have been greatly limited by the fact that you know there are people that just think women shouldn't farm or i don't know what they think sometimes but yeah. uh, they have been denied opportunities as well so, and that's and i have worked with a fair number of women who felt that, that way and and also uh, somewhat less so in terms of my individual work but hispanic and latino farmers i think really face the stereotype that your place is labor and not to be your own farmer. And that's really made that an uphill effort for them. Why else do you think that the Native American community might be struggling so much with accessing capital that you know, most other rural farmers might not have trouble accessing? I think that there is a history of lenders, including USDA, who think that they just don't want to lend money on a reservation and they shy away from doing any sort of credit that would really help people. Why? Why the, also there's, why the reservation? Like, why would that cause? It's, I mean, because the, the law on reservations can be complicated. So that your right to be able to walk in and repossess mm. tractor or take cattle back has a layer of complication uh, on a reservation, for example, that that we wouldn't have, let's say, let's just say in South Dakota, you know, if you're at Cheyenne River Reservation versus just, you know, another county out in Western South Dakota, the legal system is is different. And I think a lot of, I just think lenders have felt like, oh, this is, this is something I don't want to deal with, which was wrong because you excluded a whole group of people that are part every bit as a part of uh, this society as anybody else. I just think there's also a, a fair bit of cultural separation. Um, I mean, if you've traveled you know, Dakotas, I mean, you can, you can feel it. Let's maybe unpack the, the discrimination assistance program in a little more detail. Make sure everybody that's listening kind of understands what it is, uh, who the target audience is, and then we can kind of dive into some of the details from there. Sure. So what we have is a program that was created by Congress. So this is not the product of a lawsuit. This is a congressional program. Congress gave $2.2 billion and said, told USDA to create a program whereby people that believe that they experience discrimination can file an application and there will be an independent non-USDA decision maker who will decide whether there was actually discrimination. And 
That discrimination had to take place before January 1st of 2021. And if the discrimination is found, the payments are possible and up to $500,000. So you've, you, if you believe you were uh, experienced discrimination, you fill out an application form and eventually somebody, or in the next few months, somebody's gonna say uh, thumbs up or thumbs down. And if they say thumbs up, they will also come up with a number. That, mm. And one thing that I will, that, that it's, it's important to point out is that this is not a case where in the past estate claims were possible. And this is sort of an important point in that let's say somebody experienced discrimination and they passed away, say five years ago, their estate does not have the chance to participate in the settlement. So and it's, you know, it's just a decision that was made. I mean, one of the things that inequality and lending and discrimination does is stop intergenerational accumulation of wealth. Mm. Um, but here, what we're saying is that the discrimination needs to have almost always been experienced by the person who, who files the application. There's one little sliver of exception to that. And that is if you, somebody had a loan and they experienced discrimination, they pass that loan on to someone else. So let's say it's your father who experienced discrimination and your father, the legal term here would have been assumed or assigned. You assumed or assigned, or assigned, or assigned. your dad's loan, you can file a claim. But that's not gonna be, I mean, it's for real. I mean, are there people out there in that situation? They assume their their folks or their grandparents' loan. But overwhelmingly, the majority of people here will be folks who experience discrimination. What type of, like, what's the form of this application? Is it a narrative story? Do I need to provide documentation? That's an excellent question. Uh, it's a fairly long application. Uh, USDA would like you to do it online. Um, and what ends up happening is they ask you a lot of information about your farm, if you farmed, or your, the farm you hope to have, uh, about your relationship with USDA. What sort of loan were you trying to get? And it's just as an aside here, it's important to remember all the discrimination that is, is that we talk about in this program is all for loans. I mean, your, your right. audience will know that loans, if you're a modestly sized farm, almost everybody borrows money year to year and or to buy land. I mean, it's really kind of the only way. So credit is, is just a linchpin for prosperous farming. So when we're in this program, we're talking about discrimination in credit, in lending by USDA. Um, so yes, the... If, if you experience that discrimination, um, then, then you file an application. The application is gonna ask for some documents that you must provide for your identity and things like that. But the crucial thing is you need to be able to explain what happened to you. I believe it's crucial in detail. Really, you know, it's gonna be no fun to write all this down or to have someone help you write it down, but it's really important because you're, you're convincing another person who's never going to meet you. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened to you? And so to the extent that you have documents that help show that, show that you were a farmer, you know, and that can be receipts from sale or expenses. 
If you have any documents that show that you got a USDA loan, those are important. And then you need to just explain what happened. And um, the form can look kind of long and imposing, but I really, I just think about it for a second. You know, what would convince you of what happened to somebody? And that would be a really honest, detailed, compelling story that includes some documents that really make it clear that you, you didn't just make it up. Um, and that's really what this application asks for. Uh, there's some help out there. We can, I know, provide some information uh, offline. There, there's a, USDA has a good website and there are other organizations that are helping folks. If you, I mean, we, you could, if you just Google USDA uh, section two, 2007 discrimination, you will come to their, their website. There will be some list of organizations that can help you. There's a toll-free line. Um, a lot of the organizations that help, I mean, the, the organizations that help you are not USDA. USDA right. is instructed by Congress to sort of let vendors and other grassroots farm organizations help people on this because they're going to be more trusted and people will be um, feel more comfortable, they hope. So it can be an imposing application, but it's doable. I'm not gonna say it's easy, but it's doable. And my conclusion, my assessment is this is real money. There is gonna be $2.2 billion, $2 billion that will be distributed. If you make a good solid case here um, and are eligible, I believe those folks will receive um, payments or many of them. Mm -hmm. And can you attach things to the to the application like email correspondence that you have that sort of show perhaps what was said or what was done? Yes, in fact, that's that's a very good idea. And again, USDA would really like you to do um, it online, but there's a way to mm. submit documents. You know, as if you can get them as a PDF, right? That can work. You know, it all goes right. together. You know, a lot of people aren't. You know, a, Doing a PDF is not their thing. Um, and so you can also send it in. Um, you know, everything will work by mail. It's gonna be smoother for USDA if it's electronic. And I know lots of people, that's the second nature now, but not right. everybody. So right. you can do either one. When you, you're not actually making a claim in the application for a certain dollar amount. Is that correct? You're describing the case and then somebody else determines the value of that discrimination. So if, if you succeed, somebody else is going to come up with a number. But actually, the application in, includes the request that you make an, an estimate of oh. what it costs you economically. Got it. So okay. there's, sort of two yeah, there's sort of two pieces to that. The, in some ways, the, the, the most important piece is to show that there was discrimination. And you do that by saying you were treated differently from others, that you, they broke their rules with you or they, they did things for other people they wouldn't do for you. And once you establish that discrimination, then you're asked to explain how it affected you economically. And so in, in what I the thing that I will say is, it's like your math teacher in fifth grade, show your work. So don't just have a number, explain how you got to the number. And nobody expects that to be perfect down to the dime or something. 
just explain what the effect of that discrimination was on your farming operation. I think it's totally fine to describe how it affected you emotionally, let's say, but the rubber hits the road here on the economic harm. I could have uh, bought this land, I had it all lined up, the agreements were all set, and USDA denied me a loan, and I was unable to buy this land. And I would have been, you know, with 100 acres, I would have been able to raise corn and soybeans over those years. I was prepared. I had the equipment. I had the education. Like, just sort of make the case yeah. that you would have thrived um, and, and do your best. You know, don't exaggerate. Don't go wild. But just be straightforward about what you know to have happened and how you know it affected you economically. Who are these non-USDA organizations that are making decisions about what is and what is not discrimination? And perhaps first, what is the accepted definition for discrimination? So the to take the last part of that yeah. first, yeah. discrimination is to treat people differently because of a on, a, on a, what the lawyers would call a prohibited basis. So you can't treat, treat people differently because they were gay, or because they were Hispanic, or because of their color or race. So the discrimination that you wanna to try to explain to show that it was discrimination is to show that you were treated unfairly, you were denied something. And if you can show a, a really important thing that you could do, is if you can show that USDA violated its own rules, that mm. is extremely helpful. And that's commonly what happened. In other words, you walked in, you were eligible for a loan, and they denied you, let's say, for management experience, even though you had adequate management experience. So when you get that kind of a denial, which was to use, you know, just an everyday definition, unfair, uh, that's a big start to proving discrimination. So you want, you want to, if you can, point out that they violated their own rules. And you also, if you can, want to point out that they treated other people better. So if you believe ah. that discrimination was based on your sex, uh, to the extent you have knowledge of, of and you're a woman or you're, you know, non-conforming and, you know, in your, in your gender and other ways, you say men I, I witnessed and I know in my community, men that were my neighbors were treated differently. And so if you, and you know, and again, it's not like you, this is not a court, this is not a big trial. Nobody's asking you for, for you know, inc incredibly detailed legal documents of the property and whatnot. So if you just tell your story, tell what you know, tell how you will believe you were treated unfairly. And if you can, if you know that other people were treated better, explain that. That in this, that, that actually is what the definition of discrimination is in the law to begin with. And that's pretty much um, what mm. this program uses as its definition for discrimination as well. Okay. And I forgot the other part. It was I, I do I want to go back to who are these non-USDA decision makers. Oh, yes. But but before You're before not, we do, let me ask you a follow-up question on that. So if if perhaps the best way to prove this is to show that the USDA violated its own rules, 
then the onus is on the applicant to determine what those rules were. They got to dig them up and, and make a case as to how they were violated. Is that right? The more you can do that, the better. And, um, you know, if they, you know, if you got in a farm loan before you've heard the term cash flow. So yep. a lot of people are denied because of a cash flow, but the cash flow is something you knew about. I mean, you can just explain they misrepresented or they were confused or they just got wrong. Their look at my, at my operation, my cash flow showed that uh, this loan would have worked and they didn't mm. believe me. They used, you know, they changed the numbers you know, whatever happened to you. Um, but you're right. And, and, and I should add here too, um, because may, I think we might be making it, I might be making it sound a little harder than it actually is. Here's a crucial point. The question is what, how much evidence do you really need here to have success? It's what a court would call what's your burden of proof. And what the lawyer, what the lawyers would call this this burden right now is substantial evidence. And substantial evidence means that a reasonable person could believe that discrimination took place. So I'll repeat that. A reasonable person could believe. So that's much lower than the, than mm. the, the in, a, in a trial, a burden mm -hmm. of proof in a civil trial would often be a preponderance of evidence, more likely than not. This is not more likely than not. This is much less demanding than more likely than not. So I think what you have here is, you know, discrimination, when you describe it, can feel kind of hard to show. On the other hand, your burden here, your, your, the, uh, to provide evidence is fairly low. It's actually quite low, I should just say. So I, I think that people, you know, who have experienced discrimination, who feel like they don't have a lot of documents, because let's just say they were denied a loan and never got a loan denial in writing. They may not have a document about mm -hmm. this whole experience. Mm -hmm. You can still win here if you can make the case that you went in, describe what happened to you, describe all the various ways that you were ready to use this loan for farming, those people can succeed in this program. I'm not saying everybody is going to succeed, but far from it. But don't feel like if you have no documents, it's hopeless. Which begs. Which one begs last the... quick thing about documents, then we'll go back to our decision makers. Yeah. You can ask USDA for the documents that they have. If the burden of proof for this is considerably lower than in civil and certainly a criminal case, how do you think the USDA is going to deal with scammers, people who fabricate some story and make it sound pretty, and they maybe have some fabricated documents and they submit? It's a really important question. And you can be sure that there are folks at USDA thinking about the same thing. I think that the key to this is explaining your story at a level of detail that just couldn't be mass produced. So I'll just give you an example. Um, I'll just say, if you if you if you did a cow calf operation, don't just say we raised cattle and sold calves every spring. Say we had a small herd and a bull. There were mainly Herefords, although there are a few Angus crossbreeds. 
our farm was in Jackson County, Missouri. Um, we pastured along the railroad tracks east of town. Um, we tended to have bull, not artificial insemination. We had a great opportunity with a good market with, you know, we had some bred animals and we, we wanted to buy some more heifers to breed them. And they denied us a loan, even though we knew we could have cash flowed. We had the hay ground. You get my point. Yeah, right? I do. It's, that's a great that point. That is not going to be a mass. That is not. Yeah. That's not a mass produced claim. And I have to say, actually, the, the flip side of the fraud problem is those people who are about to target farmers and say, oh, sign up with me, pay yes. me $500, yes. and I promise you'll get a settlement yeah. out of this process. You know, anybody who promises you they can get you the money, uh, to use a legal term, they're just lying to you. Right. Um, nobody can promise you'll get it. Anybody right. who asks you for money up front is suspicious. Anybody, any lawyer who wants to help you but says, oh, but I need a third of your payout, um, I'd be very skeptical of that. You do not have to have a lawyer here. There's assistance that's available that's competent, that is free. Who are these decision makers, these non-USDA third-party folks who are going to make the final determination? You are not the first person to ask that question. I suspect so. Um, and we, the answer is we don't really know. I mean, they've hired um, an independent uh, organization. Um, there's a dis short description of them on the USDA website. Um, they're called Midtown and um, they, USDA is going to kind of, the way the statute works is sort of tell them what they want the contractor to do, the vendor, and then they're going to carry it out. So it's mm. arm's length from USDA, mm -hmm. um, but we don't really know very much about how that's going to go down. There are other vendors that are doing outreach and helping people fill out forms. They they seem to be getting after it. Um, okay. But I have to say the the sort of national administrator that will make these decisions, we don't know much about them. And I would mm. tell you if I did know, but I don't. So yeah, um, that's the black box here. Sure. And it, it does, to your point about being at arm's length, it does feel like there's some um, attempt at um, making sure there's no conflict of interest. But at the same time, the USDA is creating the definitions by which Midtown Consulting is going to make their decisions, right? So you know, to some extent, yes, but also we're we're creating the the framework by which these decisions are going to be carried out. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know what the way that I guess that I would put it from my particular point of view is I've spent 30 years trying to make sure that farmers didn't get ripped off by somebody, sure. you know, be it in a contract poultry growers or whatever else, right? We've done a lot of different things. And if I I've read this information about this program very, very closely. And if I thought that this was just a boondoggle, mm -hmm. that there wasn't really going to be much money, that everybody was going to lose, that it was just a facade, I, I promise you I would say so. And I think it, it's not perfect. Yeah. I think what's about to happen is that thousands of people are going to tell their story and they will receive financial assistance and USDA will spend the $2.2 billion 
and it won't be perfect. There are going to be people that were deserving that will not succeed. There'll be people that we think, oh, that's kind of an iffy, iffy explanation. They will succeed. It's going to happen. But I yeah. think overwhelmingly, I encourage people who feel they've experienced discrimination by USDA in the loan programs before 2021, um, I encourage you to give it a go. Let's say I apply and I'm accepted. What can I expect as an awardee? When can I expect to receive that money? In what form? Those kinds of things. So what we know is that nobody will get more than five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. My suspicion is that 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 kind of money will only come for people who actually literally lost the farm. So and it will sort of gradate down from that. So uh, we don't really know how many people are going to apply. You know, if if tens of thousands of people succeed. They may have to reduce the payments a little bit for each farmer to fit into $2.2 billion. That's possible. My guess is that many, many farmers with a compelling story are going to receive uh, in the tens of thousands of dollars. So it will be real money. It's not going to like completely change your life, but it will be real money. The thing that I need to add, though, um, not to add a damper to, at the end, Please. But uh, <clears throat> guess what the IRS thinks about these payments? I was going to ask you what, how the they're considering is, it. The IRS thinks that these payments are income. Income. And so my suggestion is that you uh, you either agree with them and report them on your taxes, or uh, be ready to to deal with them. So what will happen if you're familiar with a 1099? Uh, you will mm-hmm. get a 1099 in January after the year after these payments come out. They will say you had X amount of dollars as income. You're going to need to report the income. I My understanding, and I'm not in the middle of these discussions, is that the Treasury Department, USDA, and maybe even Congress are trying to talk about ways to soften the blow and the tax piece mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. But I think everybody should assume today that they will have the to whatever whatever financial assistance they get it will be a part of their taxes and it looks to me like nobody nobody's got a true crystal ball here i think that things will go down soonish i don't expect people to get paid before the end of december although that was the the hope i think in the beginning so not to think of it purely in tax terms I think the checks are much more likely to come after the beginning of the year. So then your tax obligation is then due, if you think about it, you know, a year after that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, but heck, that's... Nobody wants to pay taxes, but the money is the money. Stephen, what what is the... We we talked a little bit about organizations that are free, such as that, that are helping people through this process. FLAG is one. I know the Farmer Veteran Coalition is another what's the the nexus or the connection point between flag and farmer veteran coalition so um we consider ourselves to be a a bit of the legal arm of the for organizations that work on behalf of farmers so our clients as i was saying we don't really represent very many individuals our clients tend to be organizations like the farmer veterans. So we, in this 
effort, for example, we're working with Young Farmers, which is mm -hmm. a great organization. Mm -hmm. The Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which has historically focused on black farmers in the South. The Intertribal Agriculture Council, which is a, a, a big collection of tribal organizations that promote the interests of native and of Indian farmers. We work closely with them. There's something called the Rural Coalition, which uh, is spread across the country, and they all they they include a lot of Hispanic and Latino and organizations, and a, a, another again a wide variety of organizations. So we work with all of those folks, and they are also cooperators with USDA. So they're trying to help their members and get the word out and help people fill out the forms. So really, you have a choice between these vendors. Um, that are have been hired by USDA and these mm. various grassroots organizations like Farmer Veteran. You know, you don't have to use one or the other. You know, you you do whatever suits you. Another organization we work closely with is the Land Loss Prevention Project, which is uh, again historically largely about Black farmers uh, in North Car in the Carolinas. Um, there are others um, that are great organizations that can at least point you in the right way and probably also help you. I want to be respectful of your time. I want to thank you very much for it and for just the very thoughtful way you have gone about participating in this program and 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 for the you know many decades of it sounds like service you have provided to this community um, with your with your expertise. As as one final question I'll ask if there is anything that you feel like we should have talked about in this program or we should have made listeners aware of that we haven't i i i think it, it was worth repeating i hopefully we said it the deadline for all this is october 31st we have not it's yet so thank you take, <laughs> take, you, take you some time this is not something you can do in a day or two october 31st is the deadline Perfect. and the last thing that i would i would actually say if you could permit me is um you know i, I I said that my father passed away and um, and he was a reservist till mm. the day they finally made him leave. And mm -hmm. and I told him about the, the farmer veteran um, coalition and about these efforts to help folks that have come back from their deployments to farm. And he was really thrilled. And um, it was sort of fun to describe him. I, I, I remember when you guys kind of got started and got going and you're not the only organization that does it. And, sure. But I know sure. I know your work and um, he was he was tickled by the idea. And um, he, he was he just sort of like, well, yeah, I, I, I did that. <laughs> right. So right. it was it, it was uh, it was nice. And uh, so I really appreciate your guys work. You're out there slugging away. And that's. Um, it's it's a great thing. So it's it's, I, it's I, I'm really thrilled to, to help out. This is such an interesting conversation for me because I knew so little about the topic to begin with. This historical discrimination in the early days of the USDA and how their actual command structure delegated decision making down to the community level, which you know inherently meant that it was flavored with local culture. This idea of competing legal structures between state and uh, national or state and reservation law, 
and how certain lenders were reluctant to lend into these reservations due to fears of being able to claim those assets again in default. Stephen did such an impressive job of clearly articulating these issues. His intimate knowledge of the program was obvious, and the insight that he shared will be invaluable for those seeking to, to apply. Stop, rewind, slow down the audio, I think, and capture all of these great nuggets that Stephen shares in this episode. Finally, it's unusual, I think, at least for me, to find somebody who knows where they belong so early in life and never waver from that passion. This is clearly the case with Stephen, and frankly, it's inspiring to interact with someone with such clarity of purpose. So if you want to learn more about the work that FLAG is doing, you can visit their website at flaginc.org. That's F-L-A-G-I-N-C.org. They have a farmer's guide on the, the USDA program on the front page of their website. They can help you through this process, and the Farmer Veteran Coalition can help you. I'm going to post some links in the show notes uh, to the FVC website where you can go and, and find out more. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Vassar, and until next time, stay frosty. 